Okay, I really like Greek food. You know that about me, right? Yes. Yeah. And I've got an idea for a dish. Okay. And it's like kind of corny, but it's uh it's it's Greek. It's Greek okay. Canadian Greek Canadian. Um, I don't think they have much corn in Greece. But no, not literally corny. Um, oh my god! Well, I have actually, to cut that now. in a way, you're so you're right. There's actually because a lot of, especially the Aegean islands, are not very fertile, and so they don't grow much corn. However, on the island of Naxos, they have uh, good enough soil that they can grow corn, and they actually have mm. a salad called a Naxian salad. And the distinguishing element is that it contains corn. And huh. so they're they're kind of like spurning the other Aegean islands or like rubbing in their faces <laughs> that they can grow corn. Um anyways, shale, Greek poutine. Okay. And it's made with the the crispy lemon potatoes that you get at Greek Canadian restaurants. Yum. And the cheese instead of cheese curds, it's uh halloumi, like little like cubes of halloumi cheese. Yeah. And, and then the gravy is like super saucy shredded braised lamb shank. Damn. <laughs> I'm going to make it. It sounds amazing. Yeah. Is there just, just, I don't know if you know anything about this, but is there something politically, well, could, because I know that halloumi is like technically Cypriot yeah. cheese and That's not right, yeah. Greek. Is there some sort of political contention there or by calling it Greek poutine? Uh, I need to look into that, but my, okay. So yeah, the, Cyprus is a sovereign nation, but there's the, the tension is that it uh, has um, an ethnic Greek population and an ethnic Turkish population. Right. And Turkey, of course, used to be the, um, uh, sorry, Greek, Greek, Greece used to be part of like a subject of the Ottoman Empire, or part of the Ottoman Empire. And they had a right. violent, a violent uh, war to end that subjugation. I believe, though, and I have to double check this, but I believe that halloumi comes from the ethnic Greek traditions of Cyprus, not the okay. ethnic Turkish ones. Yeah, but I'll, I'll double check <laughs> and get back. So to they you. probably wouldn't be offended, right? I don't think so. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It sounds messy. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> the food court i'm shale mcdonald and i'm here with my pal alan sudaby how you doing alan pretty good we are two chefs from edmonton alberta canada we love food and we love to talk about it so alan Mm -hmm. we have any follow-up yes oh cool uh, because when we were talking about Balut last recording, the fetal mm-hmm. duck egg, and I had told you, I thought that the, um, students who brought it in had got it from an online source. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was not correct. And it turns out there is a store in Edmonton that you can walk into and buy Balut and oh, cool! it's called Kabayan Filipino store. South Edmonton, 42nd Avenue, 66th Street. And on their So I can just go get one. You should call ahead cuz I okay. on their they have a post about it on their Facebook page and they say we almost always have this. So I think there's maybe okay. like some I guess also because it's like a um I guess highly it's not highly perishable but it needs to be eaten within a very short 
a very a small window of time, right? So it's maybe right. hard to keep it in stock. But. Yeah, and I'm sure they they must be importing it from the Philippines, right? Like they're not getting it from somewhere in Canada or something like that. I have no idea, but but if I had to speculate, like there is. So sorry, I I don't know of any uh, what I would call large scale duck f- farms in Alberta, but mm-hmm. in BC there is one. Um, what's it called? Yarrow. There's a large poultry um, producer that does duck and chicken. And I, it has two different uh, brands, and now I can't remember. One is called Yarrow Meadows, okay. but they're they're quite a large operation, and they and they um, like supply like the Vancouver area with a lot of the duck that gets sold in um, the Asian markets and restaurants there. So I wonder, like if you need to be cooking like two or three weeks after the eggs are laid, seems like that would be a more logical place to get them than the Philippines. But yeah, although I imagine that like the, like I would imagine that tending to them, like, like, making the fertilize getting the fertilized duck eggs like at the correct time and stuff like that it's probably logistically like a pretty like it's a it's a probably a pretty complicated thing to add to your like duck farm business Mm -hmm. i would imagine you know like unless there's like a high demand for it i would think that it might not be worth the money to do that but i don't know maybe there is enough demand for balut between like restaurants and grocery stores in like you know bc and western canada that mm-hmm. you know they're able to do it but the uh okay so the the company is fraser valley specialty poultry they have a okay. premium line that's called uh yarrow meadows and so like when you get fancy duck breasts like at the naramata inn for instance um right it's, i was gonna uh, ask you if you knew about this because of the naramata inn yes that's exactly right yeah. um so sorry, yeah, that's their their premium brand, and I'm just looking at the Fraser Valley Specialty Poultry site. They do sell duck eggs. There's no mention of balut that I can see, but anyways, Cabayan yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Filipino store in South Edmonton. Cool, that's your source. Well, I feel like that's a challenge the issue. Gauntlet, the gauntlet has been thrown. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right on. Well, I'll. See if I can make time to make that happen cool. before we record our next episode. Okay. Um, another kind of piece of follow-up is something interesting happened. Um, our friend Talib, his restaurant, Refer, which we've referred to previously mm-hmm. on the podcast. You like that, Alan? Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, got on the 50 best restaurants in Asia list in the mm-hmm. last couple of weeks which is crazy <laughs> unbelievable yeah, yeah it's like such a an amazing shocking thing like it's i you know there's i think like i mean there's a lot of stuff about awards and <laughs> a lot of that um has you know led me to not really take them very seriously even in cases where you know i have one minor ones for things or something, you know, like I think that there's a tendency to downplay the achievement of getting an award because like the achievement is doing the thing that you're doing. And then the award is, you know, someone else pointing out your achievement, you know, which benefits 
you potentially, but it's also for their own benefit to build the brand of whatever award they're trying to give and build the brand of their own, like, um, I guess like, uh, criticism or something, you know, like, um, or critique. Um, yeah. And so it's always, I feel like a little bit kind of contentious like what does an award really mean like right. you know it's it's the food that's important or it's the you know the the art that that receives the award that's important or you know but at the same time like there are like just in Beijing I don't even know how many <laughs> like high end restaurants there are probably like on the order of eight to 10,000 or something. Whoa, where you know, did you like, get that number from? Well, because I'm sure that there are like 250,000 restaurants or something somewhere in, in that number, like somewhere around 100,000 restaurants in Beijing or something like I, that. I would, I can't believe that you could even put a number on it. I, <laughs> well, <laughs> but sorry, the reason yeah. why I can put a number on it, the reason why I can kind of, you know, have an idea of how to put a number on it is because I've been doing a lot of restaurant research about Japan. Mm-hmm. And I know that in Tokyo, which is a, you know, which is a larger city than Beijing for sure, and probably has more restaurants per capita, but in Tokyo there are two hundred fifty thousand restaurants. <laughs> is the when I can you believe that? No, I can't. When like that's when like I was... a quarter of the population. That's like if everyone in Edmonton, every four people in Edmonton, had their own <laughs> personal restaurant. Yeah. Like, but of course, I don't know, like when I was in grade eight, we did a unit on Japan and social studies. And even then, so uh-huh. like in the nineties, the population of Tokyo was like, oh, sorry, the population of Japan was 150 million, I think. And I'm, right. I'm sure it's more than that now. Tokyo must have 20 million people in it or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's still a huge number. Yes. It was like a restaurant, a personal restaurant for 1% of the population or something like that. Anyway. Um, So I'm assuming that a city like Beijing, even if it doesn't have as many restaurants per capita as a city like Tokyo, um, you know, it probably still has quite a few. And I think like, and so, you know, just like being conservative and cutting that number (laughs) in in half or less than half, you know, um, and then, and then saying that like maybe 10% of those restaurants are like reasonably high end dine-in kind of restaurants, maybe, maybe less than a percent, maybe, you know, so maybe there's 5,000, you know, high end restaurants, but that's just in Beijing. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's the, one of the 50 best restaurants in Asia, Shale. In, in Asia. Asia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're comparing it to high end restaurants also in Tokyo and in Hong Kong and, you know, and everywhere else. So it's just like when you think about, even if critiques are like weird and arbitrary, when you think about, you know, like a group of people agreeing that like refer is in the group of the top 50 restaurants, Mm -hmm. like it's just, it's shocking. Like it's an amazing achievement. Yes. Yeah. And now I'm like really regretting not maybe kind of like extending my trip to Japan to like, 
you know, a more pan Asian sort of like trip, which I have wanted to do for a long time. And there are a lot of other places in Asia that I definitely want to visit and Mm -hmm. just sort of that Japan was kind of at the top of my list. And there are a lot of things that I wanted to do there. And so I just felt like I needed to focus on that. But now I'm kind of regretting not giving me myself the opportunity to possibly um, go see Tlaib and dine at Refer. Mm -hmm. I think it's smart to focus, Jill. You're you're still yeah, young. I think so too. I'll, I'll have again. the opportunity to do that another time. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, congratulations, <laughs> Talib. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What are we gonna do? We are we moving on? Do we have a topic? I know we have a topic. I'm just being. <laughs> yeah, we have a topic. <laughs> We're gonna talk about plates, Shell. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> oh my god! It sounds like the most exciting, amazing topic I've ever heard. Of. <laughs> We're gonna, the we kind of touched on this. I can't remember in what conversation, but. I went down this weird rabbit hole when I started at Nate. We have the plate room and it's where we store all of the ceramics and others serving vessels or whatever. Um, And it was such a weird little world to me because most of the places that I've worked, there's like four kinds of plates and you have a hundred of each of them or whatever, not, not even a hundred, but like um, I guess cause it was uh, because we've, come mostly from like or i've come mostly from like casual dining like there's not we don't Mm -hmm. really think about plates very much and then i walked into the plate room at nate and there's like just hundreds of different kinds of uh serving vessels and they run from the mundane to the like gaudy to the insane to me um (laughs) and so the first the it was a point of fascination to me. And so the first kind of joke that I made to myself was while I work at Nate, I'm going to use every single one of these <laughs> plates. I'm going to make a dish and, and, you know, for one of uh, each of these plates. And I started to do that. And I do you start, have like, an idea of actually how many kinds of plates there are in that plate room? Um, less than there are restaurants in Tokyo but um like there's there's certainly dozens of different kinds um there might yeah. be a hundred different kinds I would say whoa um I'll, I'll I'll count when I go into work today uh before my shift starts um mm-hmm. but I did start to like there, there's plates that because my general aesthetic before going to Nate was like plates should be simple they should be white. They should usually be round. They should mm-hmm. basically disappear <laughs> behind the food. They shouldn't, you shouldn't even notice the plates. You should just be noticing the food. Um, yeah. But then there's plates there, for instance, picture this a large rectangular plate, maybe 14 inches across um, by eight inches. Okay. And it has a, a very wide lip that has um, gold rim and then this like turquoise kind of mosaic like pattern running all around the the border whoa and so it it looks very exotic and it's like very audacious and i was like i'm gonna use this plate it's here Mm -hmm. (laughs) i'm i'm we have it and it's here i'm gonna i'm gonna figure out how to use this plate on a menu and i would if i had a restaurant i would never buy that plate but it was there and so i was like better use it Um, i mean there must have been some restaurants that thought that they would buy that plate that that matched their aesthetic or something otherwise yep. i'm sure it probably wouldn't have been produced yep that's right and nate wouldn't yep. have a bunch of them or yep. something yeah um so that was the first interesting. 
kind of like the fascination with the plate room was like, I'm going to use all these it kind of like as a joke, but I did actually start to do it. Um, but then the second thing that uh, made me <laughs> want to learn a lot about it was um, I would get into these conversations almost every week where it's like, there's a certain plate. I know that we need to use it today for a menu item, for an event, whatever. And so I'm going to uh, ask a student to go to the plate room and retrieve these plates. And so, and I would have to describe the plate to them. Uh, and sometimes it's that's easy. why this is going to be an amazing episode of the podcast because you're so good at describing <laughs> well, plates. We'll see. Um, but it's it, like, even if you say like, we need the 12 inch round dinner plate, there's four different kinds. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. um, yeah, exactly. Or, and then some of the more mo- modern and elaborate ones, like I'd be for an event, I'm talking to the pastry chef and we have to figure out which plates we're using so that we have enough and we're not using the same ones or whatever. And we have these conversations like the, um, we're going to use the, you know, the rectangle plate that like has the margin and the margin looks like a topographical map, but it's only on two of the four sides. And like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like oh very imprecise language. Yeah, And so I started actually researching each of the plates so that we had what I call the official name or the scientific name. In other words, like what the manufacturer, how the manufacturer refers to them. Right. But then we also have common names because you don't want to have to say like, can you go grab the Dudson Duraline Vermont dinner plate that's 11 and three quarters inch across? You want to say like, go grab the buffet plate or whatever it is. Yeah, um, exactly. If I knew any of the scientific names of flowers, or I'd make like a botanist joke right now. <laughs> you can edit it in later, maybe. Yeah, Just do probably. some research and edit it in. Um, yeah. So, and then, but then how do you communicate? Like, I, I suppose it's relatively easy for the plates that you use on a daily basis mm-hmm. to like communicate what the nicknames are for those plates. Um and have everybody understand what plate that is. But for like a new plate that you want to use that you haven't been using, how, how do you, um, how does, how does it work where you can nickname that plate and have someone go and retrieve it? Is that just not? So some of them, some of the nicknames are intuitive enough. Like we have, for instance, the UFO bowl and it looks unmistakably like a UFO from a 1950s science fiction movie. Okay. So that one, even if they don't have exposure to it, they can usually go find it. But then oftentimes I have to, if they truly have never seen it before and I'm just like describing it to them with no other point of reference, you have to get specific with the shape. And then I do usually tell them like, and then flip it over and look at the base and it will say Steelite on it or it will say, right? because we have like, for instance, name. yeah, like yeah. if there's a bunch of round plates, we'll just say like, it looks like this, but then to distinguish between the ones that look the same, flip it over. We want the Dudson one. We want the Steelite one. So yeah. Yeah. Cool. So do you have a little log of all of the plate names and manufacturers and their nicknames and stuff like that? Or is it all in your head? Uh, I have it. I have a document on my computer that I (laughs) use. Um, It's not like a public document that I've shared with others, but. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you gotta make this available to the world now. <laughs> it could be a book the it plateware a, of nate it could be a coffee t- coffee table book nate plates yeah nate plates yeah um so but the actual conversation today we were gonna use this as a stepping stone to talk about plateware generally but we're gonna i'm gonna start describing some of the plates and um we're gonna talk about 
Um, well, we're going to talk about design a little bit. We're going to talk about the logistics that you need to consider yeah. uh, in plate selection. Um, and I feel like there's going to be a lot of spinoffs and rants and tangents about it because I know it's something you feel very strongly about. <laughs> well, it's interesting. And I don't know, maybe I have a bit of an opening statement about plateware <laughs> just to get some of the ranting out of the way. <laughs> but um, yeah, it has a lot to do with my opening statement has a lot to do with what you were saying about how it's sort of like the common philosophy about selecting plateware is that it should highlight the food and that the plate shouldn't really, you know, the plate should kind of disappear and it should, you know, just be a vessel to like highlight the beauty of the food or, you know, mm -hmm. um, and especially in fine dining or something like that. That's sort of like the, I don't know, common sort of take that people have. Um, but what's kind of interesting is that like when you get into um, like the really high end fine dining types of situations, you get these like, you, you sort of cross this line into like, I don't think that that philosophy necessarily just gets like left behind or thrown out the window. I think there's still, you know, a pretty common kind of like um, drive to highlight the beauty of the food and the ingredients. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in a lot of high end fine dining restaurants, you get like these situations where, you know, the chef has an idea for how they want to plate a certain dish and then they'll have a plate like custom made yes. by a ceramics maker that they are working with or something so you know like each plate winds up costing like you know and a crazy amount of money and probably in a lot of cases does look very like is a key component to the look of the plated dish yes. not just fading into the background and in a way i think it's nice that there's sort of a standard kind of like philosophy about plating mm -hmm. um it's sort of like having oh this is <laughs> this is a bad tangent but <laughs> but you can't help yourself the common philosophy <laughs> the common philosophy about plating reminds me a lot of like helvetica okay how much do you know about fonts alan <laughs> oh i know a little bit i know a little bit about okay. fonts yeah so Helvetica. So Helvetica sans serif, right? Yeah, is a sans serif font yeah. that is like um, extremely widely used in a lot of different contexts. Mm -hmm. um, one of the sort of most famous contexts that people use to sort of like um, give people an instant picture in their head of what Helvetica looks like is that it's used um, by... Well, the city of New York, but like more specifically, all of the subway signs um, and the and the text for the the names of the stops and mm -hmm. everything that has to do with the New York subway system mm -hmm. is all in Helvetica, mm -hmm. famously, and that's what Helvetica looks like. It's like this bold sans serif kind of very famous, but at the same time, because of how widely used it is looks extremely generic to most people. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's also <laughs> it's also a rationalist font, just so you know. It's, so it's it's specifically designed to not have humanist elements, like uh, like right. it's all the same stroke width and stuff like that. Um, there's no. Yeah, I'm aware yeah. of some of that. I did okay. watch a documentary about Helvetica <laughs> oh a couple of years ago. <laughs> this is a um, yep tangent. Yep. But anyway, yeah, I, I, I sort of feel like yeah it it provide provides like what's supposed to be kind of a bias free mm-hmm. um kind of like easily readable and usable um sort of basis for what you might use for text that you're going to display to clearly convey some important information to people mm-hmm is like and then and then it's used in all sorts of other like ironic ways and things like that as well but but that's like it's it's like sort of general purpose is as this like go-to font for you know um displaying important information to people right um and for no one to notice the font <laughs> no one to have yeah, to think about the font for it just to, to think yeah, about for it the to ideas. just like yeah. fall into the background and all you're noticing is the text yes you know? Um, and, and so I think that like, it's kind of nice to have this like base plateware kind of, you know, like the dinner plate is Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, like that, that you would get your meal that you might get your lunch on at a chain restaurant or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a round plate. It's about what, 10 inches wide. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can easily you know, array all types of food on it. And it does just like fall into the background. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's something to be said for that. I think it makes it, I think there's like a a positive sort of accessibility to having that like language. Yes. But then I think that it's like, you know, I think that it gets like built up into this, like into this sort of minimalist philosophy because it's easy you right. know and so people like to use it because it's easy and so they build up this sort of justification around using it that like it the plateware shouldn't be saying anything about the food or something like that mm-hmm. but then when you start to really take a look at like you know what what style and design and doing something interesting with your food like if you start to look at that in like the context of higher end fine dining or you know like um culturally separate styles of food from what we have here in north america and europe Mm -hmm. like you see that that rule isn't really a rule at all it's sort of just like some made-up stuff that makes it easy to decide how to that that it's okay to just put your food on a round plate like i i've been watching a lot of youtube videos and docs and stuff about eating in japan and mm-hmm. like almost nothing comes on a round white plate like right yeah there yeah. are a few things um and in some like chains and things like you know you, maybe your maybe part of your meal or some of the ingredients would just like come on around side plate or something but just about every piece of plateware that you see is like either uniquely made ceramics for the restaurant or, you know, like if it's like really low end then they might have, you know, like um, 
there are like uh, conveyor belt sushi restaurants where everything comes on like kind of a plastic plate and they're right. sort of round and white but a lot of them have like a design on the on the top that's like unique to the to the restaurant or mm -hmm. whatever mm -hmm. um and like I, I, it didn't even occur to me to notice at first when I was like watching all these videos. It didn't even occur to me to notice like that the plate wear was different and that the plating philosophy was different. But as I was watching, I was starting to see like even in simple restaurants, like even in even in ramen shops or something like that. Like mm -hmm. actually, quite a few ramen shops use white bowls, which is interesting, but a lot of them don't. Um, and like. There is like a very simplistic beauty and aesthetic to how ramen is plated, but like the uniqueness of the ceramic bowls that they use, like, is usually like used as a part of what makes the food look beautiful. And like, I wasn't really noticing it at first, I was just noticing that things looked really good. Mm -hmm. And then after a while, I was like, I'm not seeing any white plates, right? Like, <laughs> And so how 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 are they how are they doing it? How are they making the food look so amazing on all these like disparate types of looking ceramics and plateware? And mm. and then, you know, it started to occur to me that like, you know, the philosophy of like having a white plate and having it fall into the background is just kind of made up BS. <laughs> right. You know. Yeah. Like, and so I was I started to come become kind of like excited to have this conversation with you because like i'm i don't know i'm maybe having a bit of like a renaissance like i i think that i was guilty of falling prey to like that easy philosophy of like oh well you know you don't have to really make a decision about your plateware because you can just you know trust that if the food looks good and the plateware is simple that that you know you're gonna have something that looks worthwhile right. or something mm -hmm. but yeah i'm a lot less confident about that belief now and i think that i you know really need to start taking a look at that and and digging into it a little bit more right okay rant over <laughs> well let's dig into it then let's do it the i was gonna start hmm do we have to do some terminology <laughs> maybe like does everyone yeah. okay so the 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 dinner plate that most North Americans have in their mind, like we said, is round and white. It usually, not always, but it, the one that we have in our mind usually has what we call the well. So like that's where the food is going, the lowest part in the center. And then oftentimes yep. it'll have a lip. So this is like the the margin, the kind of flattish raised part that runs around the perimeter. That's called the lip. Um, and then the rim itself is the actual perimeter, like the very edge of the plate. Right. Um, now there's another style of plate called a coupe plate that does not have a lip. Right. Uh, the well extends right to the perimeter and then there's a short upturn at the end, but it doesn't have any width. It's, uh, just a little upturn. There's no lip. That's a coupe. Yeah. Plate. Famously, I think Ikea had plates like that for a really long time. Oh, is that right? Yeah. It was like sort of the standard Ikea plate. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. They have, is... <laughs> they definitely have plates with like a, an extended lip now, but I think, yeah. you know, a while ago, like most of their plateware was, was like that, a coupe plate. It's funny, like for people, <laughs> it, for a lot of North Americans, the coupe plate has a kind of subconscious, um, even though it can be mass produced and it's just like plain white ceramic, 
it does seem to suggest the earthenware tradition like because right the like plates that would be made of of like clay um like throne plates um wouldn't have like would often uh be coop style um, right wouldn't really so, have much of a lip yeah. yeah um anyways um what else so well lip coop uh embossment <laughs> a lot of the okay some of the plates a lot of plates will have what's called embossment. And these are like kind of fine, um, like patterns and designs that are kind of raised off the main uh, surface of the plate. Um, that's a good starting point, I think, for our terms. Yeah, I think so. Um, so we'll start with some, maybe as a way to start talking about logistics and stuff. Um, some of the the most common uh, plates that we use um, at Ernest. The first one is uh, like most of our entrees for evening service are on this uh, plate made by Spiritware, and it's a coupe okay. 13 inch dinner plate. So it's okay. 13 inches across and it's pretty big and coupe. So it doesn't have a lip. Um, it weighs four pounds. <laughs> what? <laughs> it weighs four pounds. Each plate weighs. What's four it made pounds. out of? <laughs> it is. Uh, oh my god! It's heavy, um, but. We use it a lot for entrees because of the generous space. Like it's 13 inches mm-hmm. of plating space. And so it's interesting to me, like this kind of trend. When I started cooking in fine dining, everything had to be high. You're stacking everything on top of everything else. And right. if you submitted some or like presented something to an instructor, they'd be like, it needs more height. Your salad isn't high oh, enough. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, the 90s. <laughs> um, but there's definitely, and even the difference between, in, in fine dining, like the difference between the French Laundry Cookbook and the 11 Madison Park Cookbook, you can see a, a big difference in plating style where, not, this is a generalization, but there is this trend towards a more horizontal uh, presentation where you can see each of the components a little more clearly and they interact with each other in a more, in a, in an, in a dynamic horizontal fashion instead of just being stacked on top of each other. Yeah. And so that's why the 13 inch plate is, that's why chefs like a 13 inch coupe plate, but it's four pounds shale. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> so, like, a server can't realistically carry keep, more than two of them. Yeah, for certainly. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, to me, it's a funny, it's like a chef versus front of house. Like, it must be so uncomfortable to have to carry these around. Yeah, that's <laughs> shocking. I'm amazed that there's a plate that weighs that much. Yeah. It sounds like a lot. <laughs> Um, (laughs) yeah, uh, the, like what you're talking about with like the, um, kind of horizontal kinds of, of like designed platings for dishes. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it, it's like, I, I definitely don't, I, I definitely think that like the, um, need for height has like really been pared back a lot, but mm-hmm. most of those plates that you see that like have, um, you know, a more uh, sort of like horizontally cohesive aesthetic or whatever, um, they usually do have some like relative depth though as yep. well, yeah, which totally. is what really makes it like. I still think flatness is 
has a tendency to be boring to the eye. And so like while things aren't like stacked up as high as they possibly can be, it's sort of like an exercise in making components that, you know, while they like might be plated separately on the plate have different heights. And so you get this like kind of architectural sort of depth looking. Yeah. I agree. Type of design. Like a relief sculpture kind of like there's. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, that's so yeah, point. I think that's an interesting direction that plating has gone in mm-hmm. is like keeping some of the height, but not necessarily being slavish to it, but you still using it to make things look dramatic. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's your go-to is yes. the four pound coupe plate. Yeah. Because it's the biggest okay. canvas basically. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when you're using it, do you, how far, like how, is there a limit to like how much of the plate space you'll you'll use up do you try to think keep things fairly central do you when you're plating is it always different or like well i mean i mean is it different for each dish that you design or you know like are you usually trying to create like a sort of single horizontal line across the plate or tell me tell me about your if it's your go-to plate do you do all types of different kind of looking styles of plating on it or is there something that you feel like works really well with that plate that you wind up using a lot it's a lot a lot of the menu and the plating specifically uh that we're doing at Ernest in the evening is very 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 influenced by the first 11 madison park cookbook um and it's not it's not the same it's not nearly as intricate or anything as what but it is very much the, the plating is influenced by that because to me, my, my only significant fine dining experience before was, uh, was Jack's grill. And the plating there was very like, there was vertical elements and stuff, but it really was like, it's meat, starch, veg, sauce, garnish. Yeah. It was, it was like very nineties kind of yeah like nice looking, but you know, just like, yeah, exactly. Sort of like broken up into three sort of yeah, like a circle broken up into three second sections and each one of those sections kind of having a component in it and sort of nestled together near the middle of the plate yeah. was like... And usually yeah. maybe like starch and veg are kind of towards the back of the plate so that the meat is towards the front and the meat is usually like if it's duck breast river, it's it's, like it's carved and fanned, and fanned out, out. And, yeah. which is a perfectly serviceable way to do it. Um, but... Yeah, we're trying to, I don't know, trying to have a bit more variable and dynamic presentations. And and I just like basically steal plating ideas from 11 Mass, the first 11 Mass in Park cookbook. Right. And so that often involves, I would say that like going from meat, starch, veg, sauce, garnish, we've kind of, um, most of the plates will have we kind of parse out the, instead of just veg and sauce, there's usually like a principal veg, you often a vegetable puree, and then some other kind of sauce, whether it's a reduction or whatever. And sometimes the garnishes get um, broken out a little bit. Like there's usually a crispy garnish and maybe a herb garnish and, and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And so, and I, I do make fun of myself for this, but the vast majority of our plates, it's like, there's some kind of puree going down first that's like anchoring. It's like a kind of visual backbone for the rest of the components, but also a physical anchor for the components. Yeah. Um, that puree is often drawn across the plate with the back of a spoon. This is like a total crutch for my 
<laughs> plating style now. Um, <laughs> Having to talk about it might might be the thing that pulls you out of maybe. that. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, puree, and then yeah, figuring out how the the components, the the meat principle, starch principle, veg, and all that are going to like stand in relation to each other. Yeah. Um, and then finishing with those the crispy garnish, the herb garnish, the uh, and the what other tiny detail and aesthetic is the the sauce for the meat used to always just go right on top of the meat right and and it's such a dumb thing to say but in the 11 mass in part cookbook i was like i can't believe they're artfully pooling this sauce into a tidy round beside the meat (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know (laughs) what makes me a little bit sad about that is that like i feel like i i'm sure this is not the case i'm sure that it's like a perfectly thought out portion of sauce for the meat that they put beside it but i'm always like oh like you know it's a hard way to get enough sauce right you know like yeah. if, you, if you're basing your how much sauce you're putting on the plate based on the aesthetic it yes. often seems to me like you're gonna get less than you would want but right yeah you'll get less than you desire but more than you deserve <laughs> probably yeah exactly that's that's from the menu i don't know if you remember that line that's but, right yeah. good job alan <laughs> We need more menu references. Yes. <laughs> I guess I have to rewatch. Um, there was one one group of students that after I would do my like kind of daily briefing at the start of class, they would all clap together. Oh my god. <laughs> it's frightening. <laughs> it was kind of funny, but also kind of unnerving. But yeah. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> okay. Can I tell um, you sorry, go ahead. Yes, you can tell me whatever you want after this interruption. Um, do you ever, do you ever have in the back of your head like, man, I love this plate, but it's so heavy. I wonder if I could convince them to buy a lighter thirteen-inch coupe plate. Yes, yeah, I do yeah. have that, like all the time. Yeah, yeah. And do you like go to the front of house team and you're like, man, aren't these plates like kind of heavy? Wouldn't it be better if like <laughs> try and get people on your side? Oh yeah. No, I should. Yeah. yeah. Cause yeah, that sounds crazy. Mm-hmm. There was a similar, I don't know if you remember at Elm catering, a lot of the canopy services, we had these huge rectangle platters. Oh my God. Made, yes. Those that, yeah. The Debbie the, Travis those brand. probably weighed about four pounds. Yeah. Yeah, they did. Right? I, we, I do remember weighing them. They were between four and five pounds. Um, yeah. Debbie Travis brand. And it was, they're fine when you put them out on a table for like, for hors d'oeuvres. But when we did past hors d'oeuvres and servers had to schlep it around. Carry them yeah. around for like 10, <laughs> 10, 15 minutes with yeah. appetizers on them. And, and then every, for anyone that's ever done a past hors d'oeuvre kind of cocktail party situation, like... What happens is when you take out a full plate of food, people are really excited about it. But once it starts to get down to being like a little bit less than half full, nobody will take anything <laughs> off that plate. Yeah. And so you wind up wandering around with like a half full plate for like a really long time trying to convince people to take the food off it. And then you just what what ultimately winds up happening is that like you just come back to the kitchen and refill that plate <laughs> yeah. so that it looks full, but it still has all of the ones that 
you couldn't get rid of because the plate didn't look full enough from the last time you went out. It's a weird etiquette thing, eh? Like, I don't know if it's a yeah. Canadian thing, or a North American thing, a Western thing or what, but it's like nobody wants to take the last, like they, it's almost like they think if they take the last of something, it's gluttonous or something. Oh yeah. And then when you get down to the very last one, yeah, it's just like, it's never leaving. Yeah. 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 If, if you can find, if you have two left and you can find two people who will take them at the same time, then you're good. <laughs> But if you have one left, you're doomed. It's either going in the trash or you're refilling the plate right. and leaving that one left on it. Anyway, didn't mean to interrupt you there. Can I describe another dish to you? Yes, please. Okay. So I want you to picture a soup plate. Okay. Yeah. But it has a very deep or it has a fairly deep well. Okay. And a very wide lip. Right. Okay. Now picture stretching that lip farther and farther out. So that the lip is very wide compared to the well. It's wider than the well even. Okay. okay. Now picture bending down the perimeter of that lip so that it almost reaches the table. All on all sides? All around or... the perimeter. Yeah, it's all bent okay. down. So you have this kind of dome effect. Okay. It's like a... So the lip is like a big dome. Yeah. And then does it curve gently into the well or is there or does it come to like a point where the where it does it come to a point where it's kind of straight and then the well dips down yes from there's, there, this, like there's a it. clear okay. edge between like where the well starts okay so this is the ufo plate if you if that helps okay. so it's like a a, yeah. a wide shallow dome with a well in the very top center of it and what's funny about it is that the the very rim it comes down close to the table but it is about maybe a centimeter off the table and so the lip is so wide and brought down so far you can't see any of the it looks like it's floating on the table basically. floating right. yeah yeah and so actually yeah. this is from a line by steelite called the float line <laughs> so they oh, have that's a, interesting a set of dishes that specifically or like purposefully have this appearance of floating on the table oh cool do they have like regular dinner plates that are in the floating line like no it's only this basically this general style just like with different sizes of well and stuff like that oh okay okay there's like a small medium and large so it's actually the one that we use most often it's called the steelite float medium well and it sounds like you're ordering a steak but actually it just means that the well in the bowl <laughs> is the medium size so it's like whatever four five inches across or something cool um and what do you put in there let me let me take a crack at it yeah and sorry how wide is the well in the one that you use five inches you said? so the whole plate like uh rim to rim is 12 inches across and the mm -hmm. well is maybe four and a half inches across okay so quite small yeah like the rim is even wider maybe or about equally wide on either side yeah basically yeah as to what the well is like i'm gonna say cold appetizers like what mm, salads like with mm -hmm. little little components and things like that mm -hmm. i don't know i mean like you know it's it's kind of a bowl and so i'm obviously tempted to say soup mm -hmm. but it seems like maybe eating soup out of a plate like that would be kind of difficult without it being kind of messy or something there's a lot of rim for you to get your spoon over without <laughs> making drips on it with yeah you know it would be problematic like, for soup for a couple reasons first of all the volume of that well i'm sorry the, the well only holds about exactly eight ounces eight fluid ounces right so you'd be that's got to be some good soup <laughs> you'd be filling it quite full right one of the logistical problems with the ufo plate is that there's only the centimeter clearance 
between the rim and the and the table and uh-huh. so servers especially if they have like um a lido like a, a serviette in their hand like the plate say the bowl is very hot and so they have a serviette right. in their hand they have to like tip the bowl the rim of the bowl up just to get their fingers under it to lift it off the right. table yes yeah. <laughs> so it can be quite awkward and if it was very full of liquid then it would be problematic but yeah because if you have to angle it at all then yeah. it breaks the presentation mm-hmm. especially if it's like a puree soup or something like that if it like laps up against the edge of the inside of the plate while you put it down then it's yeah. gonna look not as clean yes and i think you're right like when you say salads and cold apps that's a good starting point because the like the the crux of the issue is that you don't have very much horizontal space because the well is so small and so you mm-hmm. have to use things that like a salad would be good We've done crudos in them, like crudos that have right. colorful garnishes. But my yeah. my go-to for it is actually um, things like small portions of pasta and gnocchi oh. and pierogies and stuff like that, where it's like a, a mixed dish where you don't totally. need to parse out the elements and have them have lots of elbow room. Um, so just like something like a simple pasta with a, with a garnish. Um, yeah, that's what I've used it for mostly. But. Yeah, that makes sense because then because you don't have yeah like a lot of horizontal space. So if you if there's a dish that you have that maybe doesn't have as much like tendency to be to, you know like it would be kind of forcing it if you plated it in like a long horizontal line or something like right. that. It would be sort of like forcing it into like a weird shape without actually very many kind of like architectural elements to make it look good or something like Mm -hmm. that and you could invent some but you know like if the dish is yeah like gnocchi like i don't know you can it's nice to be able to like keep it simple in a tight presentation like that yeah my gut reaction when i first saw the ufo plate was like this is garbage this is just like the dumbest plate (laughs) (laughs) and it's just like the plate is trying to insist itself like it's the the plate is taking away from the food but right. the truth is that even though the lip is so big, it like curves up towards the well and it kind of elevates the well and it really draws yeah. your attention to it. And it's a little coat, like the well is small that it like, it looks like it's like holding the food up to you in, in, in its two like cupped hands kind of like it's, yeah. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. This is exactly what I'm talking about. It's like, <laughs> Yeah, it's I guess it's still a white plate, so that's fair. But, you know, like it really does make a difference to the design and the look of the food, like how it's presented on on what type of vessel. Like mm-hmm. and yeah, it it it's I don't know, it's kind of interesting that you can describe the plate to me and then I can be like, well, certain things aren't going to look good in there, right. you know? Yes. Like yeah. that I can just have a feeling that yeah, like it's it's not you know, it's not, you're not going to want to serve a steak in there. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. So would you say that's like maybe one of your second go-tos or it's just, you know, it's among, it's among the ones that gets used regularly. We, I, I have a kind of formula for the menu in a way, like a high level formula where it's like, yeah. you know, soup, salad, cold meat focused dish hot meat focused dish hot and what and uh sorry this is for the appetizers um yeah and we always we usually try to have one like starch forward thing like pasta like a filled pasta or pierogi or whatever um and 
this has become my go-to plate for that for that course or for that dish right um so yeah it's been there's usually one one dish on the menu that that utilizes it yeah cool okay moving on we need to get into square and rectangle plates okay and i can i can i just gonna kind of read something to you sure okay this is a quote from the art of living according to joe beef so this is the first joe beef cookbook okay um and they have a, a section of the book that's called a few theories and theory number one reads square plates like a man wearing a tuxedo top with shorts square plates do not work with joe beef food they look heavy <laughs> in a waiter's hand and are awkward to fit on the table the food looks unappetizing it's like eating a culinary version of a Malevich painting. Even in Paris, you'll go to the oldest of brasseries, so old they've been designated as World Heritage Sites, where the toilets are so antiquated they can't be outfitted for the handicapped. And you'll see... Man, those guys love toilets. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and you'll see raw tuna whiz by on a square plate. French food doesn't belong on square plates. <laughs> oh man it's hilarious <laughs> i <laughs> i just man i when i hear people's arbitrary opinions <laughs> and i know we all have them and i yeah. know i have more than most but when i hear people's arbitrary opinions i'm just like well especially when they're like written down and like <laughs> you know for everyone else to consume like you know right. I, I just sometimes i'm just like shocked like what what drove him to like write that and put it in the book like how, like <laughs> what? what made him think that that was like a truth worthy of like <laughs> of like trying to build someone's like idea of what cuisine should be like around i don't know wow. i just find it so funny i Part of it is humor, just so you know. I, I think, like, yeah, I, okay, I do think fair. it's it is partly humor, but it's tongue in cheek. Maybe not. I don't know. Actually, it's hard to tell sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, I think the whole book is a little bit tongue in cheek, but I also think that they have some pretty strong opinions yeah. about plates and toilets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway. Okay, but it's, what's horrible about what I'm saying is that I somewhat agree. I don't yeah. know. It's really weird. Well, okay, so I think that it actually it speaks to the our cultural bias and like that kind of what we consider. Uh, sorry, us considering the baseline plate being the white round plate because mm-hmm. that I my gut reaction is basically what he said, where it's like square plates, rectangular plates are imposing something about how you need to put the food on it. It doesn't seem as, but, but really the route, like it doesn't make any sense. Why so is the round? The yeah. round is yeah. too, but because of yeah. our like culture and relation to food and how we've eaten it and how we've plated it. Like we don't think about the, the round plate. We don't feel like it's imposing anything on us, but when right. I have yeah. a rectangular plate in front of me, I'm like, Oh, well I can't just like, put a toss there's salad. only one way to put the food on here yeah <laughs> it had there has to be something that like a a rectangle like a, a a horizontal element to the way that the food is going on the plate um right and so yeah for me <laughs> the, the knee-jerk reaction is like oh we need to do something a little bit different than i would usually do yeah i think so 
I don't know. I, I feel like I'm relying on this too heavily now. But like, um, like all sushi is pretty much all sushi is is presented on a horizontal plate. Not all, but but a lot. On a, rect- a rectangular plate, you mean? Uh, sorry, yeah. sorry, yeah. Um, pretty much all sushi is presented on a rectangular plate, mm-hmm. and they're usually small smaller plates mm-hmm. sometimes they're like made out of bamboo and things like that which takes away a lot of that like heaviness that he's talking about in the quote mm-hmm. and that's just the thing i mean like you can i do find like heavy and especially square like heavy square dinner plates i find them extremely awkward <laughs> yes you know they're yep. awkward to carry they are awkward to put on the table they kind of are awkward to come up with a with a like aesthetically pleasing like plating design. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is more challenging. But you know, I I not that yeah, I I do think that it's possible to do that on them. But at the same time, you know, like I don't think I think that you can solve those problems of the rectangular plate feeling heavy and awkward by, yeah, making it out of a different material or maybe not having it be white and having it be a little bit smaller or mm-hmm. giving, it, giving it a coupe design so that you can use more of the area of it and you don't need like a what – like a, a lot of the, I think, North American like um, rectangular and square plates have like a pretty – pronounced lip that is often at a fairly like steep angle right i don't know it's just like it was the it was the 90s design thing i think i'm not sure Mm -hmm. but um but yeah like it doesn't have to be like that you know if it's more of just a flat surface or something then it can feel a lot lighter and stuff like that so i i I just think it's it's interesting that Mm -hmm. you know like that the that the horizontal or that the uh, rectangular plate is being derided when really there are lots of versions of it that are perfectly suitable for what you're putting on them. We do have two similar rectangular plates that I use often at work. They're both um, either a coupe design or like uh, just the, maybe not even, not even the pronounced upturn or the subtle upturn of a coupe, but there is no lip to be sure. Um, Right. So that helps, but they are, like, I don't think it's going to, like, it's not like a real burden on front of house, but they are more awkward to carry because right. you are tending, like, usually when we put a hor- uh, rectangular plate in front of a customer, it's it's lengthwise horizontal in front of them, like the, because um, that's the easiest way to eat off of a, a rectangular plate. And so yeah. that means that the servers are holding it on the short end of the rectangle and it's like a bit there's more weight farther away from their hand than it can be awkward to carry, but it's not uh, it's not a deal breaker. I don't think. Um, yeah. So I use them like I, I, but I, I pick them for plates where I specifically want to have lots of horizontal space between the elements. Um, like, yeah. so not, yeah, not the tall, not the tall salad, obviously. Um, right. I don't like, using yeah, I them. mean to make Sorry. it not look awkward, you kind of have to have things arrayed in the direction that the plate kind of, follows which doesn't really apply to a square plate but yeah to a rectangular one you yeah there's you can't just really plate things in the middle of it and Mm -hmm. expect it to look reasonable and i tend to use them more for appetizers than mains um because to for the rectangle shape to accommodate the sheer portion size of the entree 
like you need to be using a massive rectangle plate um yeah and yeah it's a bit clunky to me i don't know yeah i yeah i think that rectangular or square plates work a lot better if they're made to feel a little bit lighter like mm -hmm. um not just lighter physically but just yeah like less pronounced rim or less pronounced lip and and like maybe just you know a tight rim or right. something like that yeah you know um i think that works really well it's like when you have the lip it's when you have a big lip then you've got uh, where the where the like corners of the plate meet you've got this like really long piece of lip because it stretches out on that 45 degree angle and i think that's what the i think that's where the like perceived heaviness of the plate comes from mm -hmm. is like the lip seems more obtrusive right than on a round plate or something like that and so when you have less of a lip and more of just a rim it's like a lot less kind of you know we had um small rectangular plates that we plated a lot of our appetizers on um, when i was working at the blue pear restaurant mm -hmm. and they were like a great go-to because you know it was like pretty easy to come up with a, a presentation for a small amount of food that had multiple components and just you know like mm -hmm. and they were also pretty easy to carry and light but yeah right yeah i've got i'm thinking at Jack's Grill, I remember there was one rectangular plate and it had, uh, not exactly, but if you can picture like racing stripes on <laughs> like, okay. like red, like a red and a burgundy line, like that, like that swoosh across part of the plate. What do you think? Oh, sweet. What do you think about color, like color on a white plate? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like I said, like, I, I mean, I do think it's a little weird because if, you're trying to put like a sauce on the plate or something that's mm. presented in a certain way, like then you have to contend with like <laughs> the color matching aspect of it. Yeah. You know? And so I feel like it's probably somewhat limiting, but in the right context for the right food, it's probably a great idea. Yeah. You know, this is, so <laughs> I think I have a picture of some of these. Um, there was also a plate. I mean, it sounds very nineties to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sounds very nice. And the, but the funny thing is that it was definitely, you know, in 2009 or whatever. So <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is a statement on its own. Yeah. Um, there was also plate. One of the dinner plates had, uh, it was like, it was a, say a 12 inch dinner plate with a two inch lip going all around, but the lip had a dark green, like forest motif all over it. Um, see, I think that could be lovely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And we would often, this sounds kind of cheesy, but we would often reserve that plate for game dishes. Cause it's like, right. It's our yeah. forest plate. I don't know. It's yeah. I think it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, yeah. I've seen so much beautiful Japanese plateware in the last like two months that I'm just like, man, I wish I got to play around with like, you know, all these like beautiful different styles and, mm -hmm. and, you know, like it's just, it, yeah. I like, I've, I've seen a lot of like, um, videos about omakase where like people go to a sushi restaurant and they're being served like one or two pieces of nigiri at a time mm -hmm. and they're just being delivered on these like beautiful but like tiny little handmade like embossed and like like intricately decorated plates mm -hmm. and like the the food itself is so simple 
and the you know like the nigiri just has like the white rice and then the color of the fish and it and it like that makes it so that basically you can put it on anything that you want and it provides its own minimalist simplicity and the plate underneath can be doing whatever else it wants like for you know the you know, to deliver some, a little bit of like aesthetic beauty or shock and awe to the dish. But like the food itself is so simple that it just, you know, like the plate still melts away because the plate is its own experience. And then the food is like this perfect little minimalist jewel, right. you know, like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's really interesting. I'm getting hungry. Cool. That was at Jack's that you had the forest plate? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I feel like how far we've I feel like we've gotten three plates deep into the <laughs> dozens and dozens of plates that they have at Nate. What what are some of the obscure picks? Okay, I've got some. Um, okay, there is a uh, a lug in the plate room that is full of miniature, like say three inch across cast iron skillets. Oh yeah. How do you feel about putting miniature cast iron skillets? in front of a customer uh are they hot it's up to you (laughs) uh i feel like it's a great idea if they're there for a purpose Mm -hmm. and what what would be a reasonable purpose well i mean this is kind of an over-the-top purpose but a reasonable purpose would be to use them to cook your food right like what? So there was a there was an appetizer dish at Noma that was like a duck egg that was cooked at the table, basically. Oh, okay. Um, I can't. I don't think it was. I don't think it was like cracking the duck egg at the table, but like there was like some side garnishes, and so um, I think they would crack the duck egg onto. So there was like cast irons. We had small cast iron skillets, mm-hmm. and they would go on top of like a little wooden coaster and they were kept at a very specific temperature um, in an oven on the line. And when we pulled them out of the oven to use them to plate the dish, we would use like an infrared temp gun to make sure that they were at the exact right temperature Mm -hmm. because they needed to be at a very specific temperature so that they would cook the duck egg that went on them like just enough before they cooled down enough that, you know, and if they were under, if they were not warm and if they were not hot enough, then they wouldn't quite cook the duck egg all the way. Right. And if they were too hot, they would cook it too quickly yeah. and ruin it, burn it mm-hmm. or something like that. So they had to be at a very specific temperature, but yeah, we would take them out and put a duck egg on it. And then I think like at the table, they would put like herbs and things on top of it and then yeah basically your your egg would like cook at the table right. on this hot cast iron and then you would eat it out of there and so it's on a wooden coaster and that's what the servers mm-hmm. are carrying like the servers are in their hand they're holding the wooden coaster and that's what they put yeah down. if i remember correctly huh. yeah because that's one of the awkward things i i agree there's lots of things you could do with the little skillets but one of the awkward things is like am i gonna put a cast iron skillet onto a four pound spirit wear 13 inch coupe plate. <laughs> I don't and, see why not. You know, <laughs> you're going to have to a carry it with cast two iron skillet. On. <laughs> have we ever talked about like this, uh, like that cooking kind of not even table side, but like on the table, like you mentioned, have we ever talked about the Arctic char dish at Steyrek in Vienna? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast. I don't know. It, you talking to me about an Arctic char dish definitely sounds familiar, but it's a famous like, and 
so this was the f- probably yeah my first michelin starred or whatever like that uh type of dining experience uh in vienna um we were very nervous going there and i didn't mm-hmm. even like i didn't know what to expect i thought i assumed they were going to be snooty i wasn't sure if they would speak english i didn't know okay but lisa yeah. and i went and we were so nervous that when we arrived and they said guten tag or whatever like we just like smiled and nodded pretended and... that you spoke German. <laughs> yes oh, God. they sat us down at the table we had hors d'oeuvres they were still speaking to us in german and then they brought out this um platter that had a little wooden frame on it um like a square wooden frame and it had a piece yeah. of raw fish in the middle and they started talking to us they put it down um on the table started talking and they and then they started pouring um hot what we later learned was hot beeswax over the fish and it pooled in the frame and covered the fish and you could see it starting to go from hot and translucent to like cooling down and becoming opaque and he was clearly giving some kind of explanation or instructions in german and so we had to finally say because we weren't sure what we were supposed to do we had to say uh like what would you speak english and they're like oh yeah of course yeah we speak english and like, of course, every, <laughs> Why didn't you just tell like, us? everybody yeah. who worked there spoke perfect English. Um, but anyways, yeah. that's what they were doing is cooking, like, yeah, bringing the beeswax to a, the exact temperature, pouring it over the fish, and then leaving and serving you other courses while it cools. And then they take it out of the, uh, the beeswax and take it back to the kitchen to plate it. Wow, man, yeah. that's so cool. <laughs> I've never even heard of that cooking food with beeswax at the table, like. Yeah. yeah. And I think they, if I, I don't remember all the elements, but when the plate came back finished, like it had other like bee, like, like honey and pollen elements to it. Sweet. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah. So is there a way to use cast iron skillets? I mean, I've, I've used cast iron skillets in restaurants where I've worked before to mm-hmm. serve things like that are, you know, that were cooked in the skillet. Right. Um, These are the ideas I've had so far. Okay. I've been doing some kind of probably beef or bison, probably steak kind of dish that is basically like cowboy themed. <laughs> okay. Where like there's either a cornbread element or a baked bean element or something that's in the cast iron uh-huh. skillet. That seems like something. I've, f- I've served cornbread in cast iron skillets yeah. before. Yeah. It seems like something that like on could be just like something from Montana's cookhouse, but. <laughs> also could be fun i don't know um and the only other thing that crossed my mind with them was uh we've talked about the um pot dumplings where you like make a stew and then um put some kind of like biscuit batter or dumpling batter on the boil on top of the boiling stew and cover it and let the dumplings cook in the stew something like that if it were part of like a especially if it were part of a themed dinner um that, that made sense like doing individual versions of that could be fun three inch cast iron skillet doesn't seem like a lot for a dish like that but no it would have to be part of like a multi-course kind of thing yeah 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 for sure i yeah i have nothing against using a cast iron skillet i i think that like using the heat of it to do something is for me part of what is appealing about the idea right i don't know like when you're saying like yeah that you would use it like in sort of a cowboy themed presentation <laughs> i can see why it fits there yeah <laughs> but i yeah to me that feels a little kitschy or yes. something like yeah totally i don't know but yeah <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> okay, so yeah, uh, a lug full of cast iron skillets that you have yet to figure out a use for. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, what else? Another, some other kind of oddball ones. Um, large, actual scallop shells. Oh, right. Yeah, we've talked about this before. I've mentioned them. Yeah. And I've mentioned my hesitance to you. Like, okay, so the classic presentation, like Coquille Saint-Jacques, is the the scallop baked in the shell. Mm-hmm. And to me, in the right context, that's an amazing, amazing presentation. To me, the context is that, first of all, the shell belonged to the scallop that you're eating. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not like a shell that has been used to serve hundreds like hundreds of, of times. Yeah. Yeah. Like because the, <laughs> yeah. the the connection. Otherwise, it's just like a. It, it's not a true connection. Like it's. I mean, I agree. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And also, probably, yeah. So, like being in a situation where you're being served big fresh scallops, like close to where they were harvested, it's weird. It's weird to me to like have the reused scallop shell in a in a restaurant in Edmonton. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, kind of, it, I guess it's kind of like the gimmick of the cast iron. Well, are you using the cast iron or is it just there as a prop? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's how I feel about it. Yeah, probably wouldn't be searching too hard for a use for those if I were in your shoes. Mm-hmm. We have had students serve scallop crudo in them. Yeah. Yeah. And usually customers think it's really cool. <laughs> so... Yeah, some people aren't necessarily going to make that distinction about like, well, you know, like it, how close are we to the ocean and how likely is it that this scallop actually came from this shell or that they cooked it in this shell or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes it's really obvious. And I, I imagine that when it is really obvious in a lot of cases that the scallop was like cooked directly in its own shell and then it's like the whole scallop in there, probably a lot of Western diners might find that somewhat off-putting. But Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Okay. I don't know why, but like there's, I have like this itch that I was hoping it was going to be scratched in this conversation, like almost immediately, but I, but it hasn't so far. And I'm just like so curious to find out (laughs) if there are multiple styles of glass plates in the plate. Ah, that's a great question. Um, there are glass service platters. Like I would describe them. They're okay. probably not. Well, they're actually a little bit of an awkward size. I would say that the the ones that I can picture are much larger than you would typically put somebody's entree on. So they'd be more mm-hmm. used in a buffet situation. Right. Okay. And they, if I remember, I'll, I'll get a picture for you. But I think that they, again, to me, very 90s-ish. The, yeah. the the bottom of the platter is like cobbled glass. Like it has a lot of texture and irregularity. And then the service yeah. side is smooth, but you can see all of the... See all of the texture. It's almost like yeah. a kind of... Like a blown glass, like kind of like air bubbles and... Oh, that's kind of neat. Stuff. Yeah. And it's kind of greenish, a little bit greenish in my mind's eye. <laughs> 
in in my mind's eye, most glass plates have a bit of a that like greenish bluish like glassy hue to them. Yeah, it's exaggerated a little bit, I think, in a lot of them. I have seen like totally clear glass plates before, but oh, really? but like. Well, not totally clear. They usually have some kind. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, I don't know. Tell me if you can picture this in your mind when I tell you about it. But it's like a coupe plate and maybe the size of like maybe more of an appetizer size than a dinner plate size. Mm -hmm. But it's clear and it has like a pattern of flowers on the bottom of it. Like the top is smooth, Mm -hmm. but the the textured bottom is like plants or flowers. And it's like, yeah. yeah. I'm sure we had that plate like when I was growing up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why. Yeah, it seems like that was a very popular style of plate for a while, like in the 90s or something. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I feel like a lot of restaurants had plateware like that. And man, I just like, what's your take on glass plates? I guess (laughs) you don't really get to use them very much in your current situation mm -hmm. since they don't have anything besides a serving platter, really. But I actually distinctly remember being served, I think it was like a samosa plate or a hummus plate or something on that dish that you just described at the Upper Crust Cafe, uh, oh, circa yeah. 2005, something like that. Yeah, I think I, I also seem to, or like I have this association with like salads being served on that type of plate in chain restaurants in like the 90s and early 2000s and then also that plate being a popular choice for like um for buffets that had like a lot of like salad bars basically like it's a salad bar plate or something i'm not sure um yeah what's my take on it i mean in a way (laughs) i understand that it's kitschy but I also have certain associations with it. And like even just yeah. like the idea of glass serving plates but all and glasses and but also kitchen tools like like do you know what depression glass is? Uh I don't know. Um like it's um like you you probably have seen a citrus juicer that's made of depression glass and it's like it's glass okay. but it's usually tinted and there's like it's like a kind of um like mauve color or a light green color. Oh, okay. And yeah, yeah. Like yeah. my grandparents had like all of their juicers were made of this this depression glass, and so it's it's weird. But I have yeah, I have memories and associations with those glass plates, and so yeah, I I I could get into it. <laughs> yeah, I, that's how I feel about it too. It's like I I think that like you know when I was like you know, just getting into like working in fine dining and stuff. Like I think in some restaurants that we, that I was at, like we had glass plates Mm -hmm. and they were like derided as like, oh, we don't use these anymore, but you know, like we haven't had the balls to throw them out or something. (laughs) But but like everyone was like, oh, it's so lame and like old to like plate on glass. But I really feel like for me, it's something that's like come back around. Like it's wrapped around from being so bad that it's almost interesting (laughs) now. Like and, and and that like, you know, if you found like authentic, you know, versions of things that, yeah, like like you're saying are made of like those, you know, like depression era like glass you know colored vessels and stuff like that if you could find stuff like that to play it on i think that it would provide something really interesting mm-hmm. i don't know <laughs> which, was just, was, which is why i was wondering if there's like some hidden kind of trove of right. glass plateware hiding in the back corner of the nate plate room that like you know is just 
just itching to be like you know <laughs> to have uh, out in front of the clientele that you know is probably going to appreciate it the most right okay i'll look but in the meantime <laughs> i'm going to value village i'm gonna i'm gonna dig some up for you <laughs> Thanks for listening to Food Court, a podcast recorded in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Food Court is hosted by Alan Sutterby and Shale McDonald. Theme music by Ryan and Shale McDonald. Make sure to subscribe to Food Court in Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or in your favorite podcast player. We love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at feedback at foodcourt.fm or find us on Instagram at foodcourtpodcast. If you want to spread the word, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with a fresh new episode. Thanks for listening.